You're listening to Radically Agile, powered by Catalent. Tune in to hear thought leaders, operators, and visionaries share their expertise, lessons learned, and best practices for how to prepare for the rapidly changing world of work. Now, let's get Radically Agile. We're here on a, uh, a relatively wintry October Friday in Boston. The sun is shining, but the wind is blowing. And I'm really excited to be joined by uh, Scott Kersner, the co-founder and editor of The Innovation Leader and a, a columnist at the Boston Globe. We've known, we've known Scott for a while, and he's definitely one of the real innovation champions in this, in this ecosystem. Now, typically, he's actually interviewing other people about innovation, uh, so I'm really happy today to have the tables turned. So I'm thanks. really nervous by, about that, but we'll see how it goes. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. Um, so tell us about your work with the innovation leader. What drove you to start it? Well, I think what drove me to start is it felt like there was maybe an information need amongst big companies who were trying to think about, we need to develop products in new ways. We need to interact with outside parties and startups in new ways. And basically just like I I sometimes describe it as like they realized their innovation metabolism was just too slow. And I'd been writing, you know, for the last 15 or 20 years, I'd been writing about both startups and larger companies. And at some point you realize like they're just two different things. You know, startups come to work every day and pretty much everybody is thinking about like, hey, we've got this new thing. How do we make it better? How do we market it? How do we discover new channels to sell it? And in big companies, frankly, like a lot of people come to work every day and they just want today to be the same as yesterday and this week to be the same as last week. And like, just don't change anything. Leave me alone. Yeah, it's interesting. You've been obviously doing this for a couple of decades. Um, Innovation seems to be more important than ever at companies. What have you come to see as the biggest challenges, though, with that? Well, I mean, I think you're right that companies are aware that there is this innovation imperative. And often they look at, you know, companies like Catalan and well-funded startup companies that are trying to come in and disrupt an established industry, disrupt an established business. Um, So you're asking kind of what makes it What's making it important or what's making them focus on it well, now? I, yeah, why the particular focus on innovation today? I bet 20 years ago or 25 mm-hmm. years ago was the first time that a big company, maybe even earlier than that, said, okay, we have this innovation group. Yeah. Well, and I basically, think, why now? Yeah. I mean, I think historically there are a lot of companies that have done innovation in two ways. You know, they've either had a, an, a group that they called R&D, and it's lots of smart scientists and PhDs in a room sort of trying to invent the future of that company. An example would be like, you know, General Motors and Ford um, have had these R&D departments for a long time, and they sort of expected all good ideas would come out of that department. And then there's often innovation by mergers and acquisitions. You know, we're going to acquire fast-growing companies and sort of get this innovation injection. And I think what's happening now is companies are realizing that the acquisition you can often overspend for, you often lose a lot of the key talent. You can sometimes, um, I like this phrase, kill the butterfly. You know, you acquire this really beautiful thing that has built something amazing and has this devoted customer base and big companies sometimes figure out how to screw that up, frankly. And then the R&D model, I just think it's a very insular model that says, we're gonna have all the smartest people in our industry working for GM. And companies like Cruise Automation and Tesla are proving every day that that's not true. You know, when you have these these new entrants that can attract the talent that you used to expect would come to work for our R&D, it sort of forces you to think, gee, we need to have lots of different flavors and lots of different avenues for innovation to happen in our company. So it's pretty clear there's no, you know, single uh, correct formula for innovating. How do you think about the process? Are there different 
forms and flavors of innovation at companies that you've seen more broadly to be successful? Well, I mean, I think there is no, I, I wish there was a one size fits all solution because every big company seems to want the easy solution here. Um, and I think that um, really what the issue is, is that a lot of companies are just, you visit these big companies and they're in their own office tower in Manhattan or they're on their own campus, you know, in the suburbs of Chicago. And they just, I, I sort of use the metaphor of opening the doors and the windows. Like they've been breathing the same oxygen for a long time. They have lunch with their colleagues every day. They never get out of the building. And so, you know, could you open the doors and open the windows and start interacting with outsiders. I mean, I think that's a big part of what you guys have built your business on, right? That there's lots of talent that doesn't work in that, on that corporate campus, in that, in that um, company-owned high-rise. So oh, how do you open the doors and windows? And there are lots of different techniques and methodologies for that. I mean, a lot of companies are using the lean startup approach, and they're going out and building prototypes and talking to customers much sooner than they used to. But I think if you, if you think, gee, we need to go from this closed insular model of being a company to this more open model of being a company where we interact with outside parties and find ways to get them involved with our business. You know, that's, that's something that does seem to work for a lot of companies. You mentioned something there about lean startup, and I want to come back to that. I think the one, the one thing we've seen at Catalan that I would say lines up really well with what you just said is that in the prior phase, R&D that was insular and internally focused made more intellectual sense when folks or when companies and markets themselves weren't evolving very much. So if you think to Bell Labs or something like that, you know, for a long time in, in telecom, there wasn't really very much uh, externally driven disruption. And so actually being able to process signals faster or offer a better handset you know, probably was the basis of competition. And today in, in telecom, there's so many exogenous disruptions and threats, whether it's, you know, voice over IP calling or WhatsApp or any of those things, that the possibility, to your point, that the right person is located within your company, particularly if they've been there for a while, is just not that high. Yeah, I think that's right. And I also think cycle times have just changed. You know, these companies used to, you'd go in and they'd have the 10-year roadmap of like, here's our vision for what our company is going to do and how our industry is going to evolve. And then just so many times now in the 21st century, you get sideswiped by competitors doing something you didn't expect or a new entrance doing, a new entrant doing something that you couldn't have predicted. Yeah, that's the, the, the challenge with using full-time employees to uh, project against things that you have no idea what they're going to be. You don't know the skill sets you need. So, so going back to the lean startup point, because I think a lot of people, probably the awareness of the concept is near 100%. The awareness of what it actually means, particularly in bigger companies, is probably very low. What do you mean when you say lean startup practices in bigger companies, and, and where have you seen it be successful? Well, I mean, I probably don't have the most thorough and deep uh, definition of lean startup. Um, you know, there are probably some lean startup um you know, evangelists or advocates that would take issue with this. But for me, it's about building a prototype faster, whether it's a digital prototype or a physical prototype, putting it in front of actual customers sooner than you used to, seeing whether they will actually buy it. It's not a market research test. It's a like, hey, would you buy this low fidelity product? You know, would you, or would you at least click the buy button? And then we might tell you like, oh, it's actually not available yet, but thanks for the info and we'll let you know when it is. Um, and it's letting stuff fail that the customer doesn't want before you've spent $10 million doing market research and prototype development. 
And so I think that where have I seen companies using it? You know, we, there's this really cool thing that Adobe has developed, you know, about the Adobe Kickbox program. No, I hadn't heard about it. So it's, it's interesting because it's open sourced at kickbox.adobe.com. Adobe's, you know, some people think of them as a, as a newer tech company, but they've been around for 30 or 40 years. So in Silicon Valley, they are ancient. Um, you know, they kind of grew up in that era with Apple computers and the Macintosh uh, and desktop publishing. But the Kickbox program is, is built around the Lean Startup methodology. So you get some training in how to prototype stuff and how to test it with customers. There's a physical box that they give to employees as part of this training. And it contains some, you know, um, flashcards about the Lean Startup approach and how you test stuff with customers. It has like a chocolate bar. It has a Starbucks card because you can't make anything happen without caffeine and chocolate, but also has a thousand dollar debit card that the employee gets, which is just, here's a thousand dollars to test your concept. And you could spend it um, getting someone on Upwork to build you an app or a website. You could spend it on Google AdWords trying to get people to a website. And so they actually are having people build products, you know, sort of build their, um, you know, uh, a concrete version of their idea and put it out there on the internet and get customers to buy it. So we've seen other companies adapt that kickbox approach. I think MasterCard was using it internally. I think that um, Ernst & Young, um, uh, the, uh, the tax, um, you know, the tax branch of Ernst & Young was using it for their employees. And so it's, it's an interesting idea that started to get some momentum. I think there's been everything you said there ties to an underlying change in how People at big companies ideally are thinking about developing new products. We had a we we recently were the site for guinea pig testing for a um, you know Greater Boston-based um, coffee and donut chain who will remain nameless. Uh, they you know they came in here and they had six potential products mm-hmm. that were you know lightly branded by this company, but really were just other people's products. And the question was, would you if you walked into you know a Dunkin', would you actually buy this, and how much would you pay for it? And that's, I think, are you allowed to disclose a name, or are they going to have to edit that out of this podcast? I don't know that they're now. a customer. I think they're more just uh, people who use our employees as uh, food tasters. But, yeah. Um, what was cool about it was, I feel like ten or fifteen years ago, they would have actually had a focus group and a conference room where people had to tell about how the products made them feel and theoretically opine on whether it would be interesting. Whereas here, they actually were looking at 150 of their customers and putting products in front of them and saying, "Will you pay?" $4.50 for this smoothie if it was available at our store. And so to me, that's kind of a microcosm in how people, and, and the point about $1,000 literally, I think is a good one because um, innovation doesn't need to be expensive. Obviously, if you're in certain spaces, if you're in pharma, you're in you know hardware, maybe. But for consumer-facing technologies, particularly where the, the end product is not deep science or deep technology, I don't know. There's just so many ways to experiment on low cost. Yeah, we've even heard, I mean, the Duncan example is interesting. We've heard about General Mills putting stuff on supermarket shelves and seeing whether, you know, it's a package that is weighted as it would be if it was a finished product, but they just want you to take it to the cash register and try to buy it. And then they let you know, like, sorry, this isn't actually out yet, but we're doing a test of, you know, are people interested in this? But th- that's such an important discipline. Will, will somebody actually pay money for this? Yeah. I know, you know specific Catalan and actually an hourly nerd example, but a lot of our classmates uh, against whom we were in the class project contest that this company came out of would do a ton of decks and customer research and customer surveys and theoretically people were interested, whereas we actually went out in the street and tried to get people to give us money for our service. And, yeah. 
you get much more real feedback when somebody's like actually handing you their credit card, I think. Yeah, yeah totally agree. So if, you know, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast, probably almost all of them work at big companies. Most of them are not the CEOs of those companies. If there's somebody who wants to be more innovative and wants their company to, you know, take new products to market faster, how can they do that? You know, to, to, that seems kind of daunting and intimidating to almost be a change agent of one in a big company that, you know, is slow to innovate. Well, I mean, I think it's tapping into like, wh- where is the support for me to do something differently in this company? And who are the people that will support some kind of change? Because mo- most companies are full of people who know that they need to change. You know, you look at an industry like retail and, you know, there have to be some percentage of people at Macy's today that realize like, this is just not going to keep working, you know? Um, so I think it's understanding, well, who are the people that can get on board with some kind of change? Who are the people who are going to resist it? And you might need to understand, like, these people are just out there kind of trying to sow, you know, fear and sow discord and kind of undermine what we're trying to do. And then often I think it's about creating a subculture in some little part of this company. You know, it doesn't have to be an office in Silicon Valley or an office in Boston, but it can be a little corner of the headquarters or a little corner of a regional office where you just, you're working in different ways, you're using different tools, you're maybe embracing lean startup or design thinking or agile. And people, I think the more and more you build those subcultures where you can hire a different kind of person, you're potentially using outside talent or outside partners differently, and you're producing results, you know, companies pay attention to, re- to concrete results and they do start to notice like, oh, Rob's group over there in the corner has like, tested eight concepts this year and they brought two of them to market and they're actually generating real revenue or they're actually saving us real money. Um, It's getting to those concrete launches and those tangible metrics that really helps these innovation initiatives build momentum, but it's hard. What do you think, um, you know, a lot of what you just talked about there sounds somewhat consumer focused. And if you think about our lives as consumers, even in the last five years, but particularly the last 10 if you go back 11 years, no iPhone. If you go back, uh, at least in Boston, six years, no Uber. Um, four or five years, no Airbnb, um, no Instagram, any of those things. What can businesses, even if they're B2B, uh, learn from the amount of unbelievable disruption that's happened in the consumer side in the last decade? Well, I mean, I think what you can learn from it is is almost all of it can be applied in the B2B world. And I think those kinds of expectations that you're talking about that, you know, my smartphone is the portal to everything and I should be able to text or I should be able to, um, you know, have lots of app-enabled services on that smartphone. The idea of like complete information about what's going on in this transaction is something most B2B companies are terrible at. You know, you still have to get on the phone and, you know, leave voicemails and wait for them to call you back. Like, what's the status of my, you know, truckload of bat guano or whatever it is? And like, you should have looked at Uber and said like, oh, actually we need to have, you know, you could put a pretty cheap smartphone in that truck of bat guano and you could know where it is at any time. And, you know, I think, I think the, you know, the giant avalanche of change that's happened in consumers' lives is really coming to B2B companies, and some of them realize that and are innovating in different ways and investing more in innovation. Yeah, certainly. I think if you look at the B2B products that have had breakout success, not at all driven by sales or marketing, it's, it's companies like Slack, where they remember that people who use B2B technologies at work are people. 
and want to use apps that are you know intuitive and and even a little bit fun. And one of the amazing things, like uh, you know, we use Slack and Innovation Leader. And one of the amazing things is they anticipate like ways that you're going to want to change your subscription and they just you know they seem to have like gone down every possible avenue of choice so that like they realize like oh if you you know if you add people to your team we're just going to automatically increase the billing and let you know but also if you reduce people from your team you know we'll you know we'll downgrade the bill so so it's almost like anticipating like oh there's going to be a customer service issue there and how do we solve it before you have to email us or call us which is such a difference from how many legacy industries operate where if you think about airlines how hard it is to make a change for, for most for most of them they're they're so customer unfriendly almost as their business model even yeah. if, you, if you think about the insurance industry rejecting claims is a big driver of profitability and yeah. and you know I presume I'm not a unfortunately I don't think they're active in Massachusetts but I would I presume a company like Oscar is not oriented around those uh those themes. I think I sometimes talk about the utility mindset, and I think there are a lot of B2B companies and a lot of B2C companies that have this mindset of like, oh, because we're the only airline that flies from, you know, Boston to Duluth or whatever, like we can treat you however we want. And it's, you know, it's the same way that your electric company treats you. Like they're never going to be proactively great at customer service and customer experience. But I think you're going to see an increasing number of companies that that have that utility mindset just get killed. You know, like they're going to fall out of the S&P 500 index. Um, they're going to get disrupted by startups and they're just going to lose ground to, you know, to the competitors. Yeah. To, to so many companies that operate in very competitive industries have um, delivery models that are so um, sort of digitally native unfriendly. I was recently trying to do a stock transfer to my university for my, for my donation. And it turned out I had to print out like a stock transfer form I haven't printed something in this company like ever, so I had right. to figure out how Find to hook the up printer the printer is. at our yeah. company. Then, when I was concluded with that, I had to fill it out by hand and fax it. And so, I emailed our customer service lines. I actually have this thing called DocuSign that'll allow me to digitally complete the form and email it. They're like, no, 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 it has to be a wet signature that you then fax. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, how does that make sense? Um, how will you even know if it's a fax? Um, so anyway, it's just like an unbelievable statement. The other thing you said that was interesting about Slack was. Um, you know, I'll admit when we when our engineers were pushing us to to adopt Slack as a company, I was somewhat skeptical that the product added a lot of value relative to our existing system. And there, I noticed these little cute things within it, like the ability to make custom emojis mm -hmm. um, with which you can react to. Um, now, I, obviously, I don't personally know how to do that, but people at the company do. And it's actually been an incredibly important cultural thing for our company that when people post notices to a public channel people can use custom emojis to react. And that's yeah. such a, it's such a small part of the product, but it's, you know, one of our investors, Greylock Partners, has this theory that companies that win are the ones that pay unbelievable attention to the smallest details that seem trivial and irrelevant, but actually make all the difference. Yeah. And to at Slack, nobody probably even thought twice about should we allow people to offer custom emojis, but then at a, you know, legacy enterprise software provider, I would imagine that if somebody said, I'm going to spend the next three weeks trying to create tools for customers to create custom emojis, 
that would be thrown out because it's not you know immediately practical or relevant how the how the product works. Yeah, well, I worry with with that. I, I worry that all communications is becoming emoji based. You know, and I, not worry. I guess it's good that you can create custom emojis and you can create. Um, animated emojis in Slack because if we're going to communicate all with emojis, like we need a broad range of them, you know, yeah. to make it as as useful as the English language. Certainly, if um, the ten years ago version of me who worked in private equity heard twenty eighteen me talking about the importance uh-huh. of custom emojis, <laughs> right, you would be very shocked. surprised. Um, yeah. So we're obviously here in Boston in the Innovation District, the Seaport. Um, would love to hear more about how you think about the Boston ecosystem. Um, obviously, there's, you know, I think a pretty healthy tension between New York, uh, you know, the Bay Area and Boston as to who's who's really leading innovation in the country. What's your best case for Boston? Well, my best case for Boston is that um, it's different from New York and it's different from Silicon Valley in interesting ways. I mean, I think Boston is so much more about science and discovery and pioneering stuff and you know the the whole academic ecosystem that's been around in Boston for like 400 years now since you know since some people started Harvard um you know provides the um you know provides the fertile soil that everything grows out of um it's different you know you go to other places like Silicon Valley is just fundamentally more like commercially oriented and more about like the marketing and more about the you know what is my options package where i think Boston is so much driven by like i want to be the first person to discover um x y or z in my field and then people build companies around that um and and the thing that i would say that's interesting from the big company perspective you know Boston has venture capitalists that fund startups uh, like you guys. It has all this great academic research. But I think what's what's happened now that you see in the life sciences and biotech industries is that, that big companies are coming here because there's a lot of open exchange of ideas and there's a lot of partnerships. And it is that kind of idea of open doors and open windows. And, you know, we're going to be better if we understand the academic research and what all the startups are doing and we have partnerships with them. Um, and it's so so it's kind of become this web of interconnected innovation that is really different from a lot of cities where they still have the like, oh, we're proud that we have a Fortune 17 company here in the suburbs of Indianapolis. And like those people never interact with startups. They never go speak at universities. They're never participating in Techstars demo days. So it's like it's a long answer to saying I think we have, you know, we have a really fertile innovation ecosystem. And I actually think big companies here are looked at as more of a central part of the ecosystem, whereas in the Valley, they're seen as like, um, I don't know, as like tourists or wannabes or outsiders who are, you know, who are sort of trying to buy into the ecosystem there. Um, And I I just don't think they're as woven into it. For sure. It'll be interesting to see, you know, obviously there's so much build right now in the seaport uh, in Boston. It feels like there's a new you know, 30 or 40 story skyscraper every day, PwC, Goodwin Proctor, other, you know, more traditional service economy companies moving in here. Yeah, I think this, this neighborhood, they started calling it the innovation district, but now it's like the professional services district, <laughs> I think. It's becoming quickly the sweet green and uh, soul cycle district. Uh, I think it'll be really cool to see some of the companies that are, if you're listening and you work at a company in Waltham or in, you know, Burlington, I think it'd be cool to see some of them open offices in the city. I know it would certainly help recruit millennials. You know, I, we get many resumes every week from people who are actually otherwise having a good time at their company, 
but they don't want to drive from Southie out to Hopkinton or out to Burlington or any of those places. And so it, it almost baffles my mind a little bit that, it, that bigger companies haven't set up a office, you know, somewhere downtown. Yeah, it, it gets into a whole other discussion, I think, about what is the, um, you know, what is the age? Because I think the suburban companies will argue that, like, hey, once people are looking for a great public school system and once they want to have a house with a yard, and so, like, you know, it is the age, like, 35 or 36 where people start saying, like, oh, yeah, working out in the suburbs of Boston or working down in, you know, uh, I'm trying to think about the Bay Area, you know, like working in Berkeley or Oakland or Emeryville suddenly becomes a little more appealing than working in South of Market. Um, I do I do think there's an argument to be made for, uh, you know, a certain age person does tend to gravitate out to the suburbs. It may be too controversial a topic to touch on in the Catalan podcast, but... No, um, I mean, for sure. I think it'll be the millennial group right now is, I don't know, 25 to 35. Uh you know, at some point, presumably, they will want to live in bigger houses, and they may have children who they want to go to high-quality schools. And what happens in that world will be really interesting to see, and, yeah. and how their priorities and their tastes change. But I do know right now there are a lot of companies that are focused on recruiting young talent that don't do well without at least a presence in the city. Yeah, yeah, I think it's I think it's really true. And there's just an energy that you know, it's not the suburbs of Boston; it's the suburbs of everywhere where you just, it's a different energy and there's a lot of disincentives to go and have lunch with a friend who works at a different company, you know, here in the Seaport District or in South of Market or in downtown Palo Alto, like you could do it every day pretty easily. And I just don't think that sort of interchange happens as easily. And it's a subtle thing, but uh, you don't run into people uh, when you work at an office park in the suburbs. It just, it's not, you you might drive past them on the highway, but you have no idea. And, you know, I'd say it's at least once or twice a week I run into a high value business contact at some, uh, you know, on the streets in the seaport of the financial district. And that actually really moves the needle for our company. Yeah. Well, now you're really going to be on the hit list for like every suburban commercial real estate agent and every (laughs) suburban landlord is going to be like, who is this Rob Biederman character? And is this now the new focus of your podcast? (laughs) Well, it's like a real estate development podcast. Yeah, it's like I wish we uh, I wish we owned our office here um, along those lines. But anyway, well, Scott, it was great to have you here. Really appreciate you coming in. Uh, for the listeners who want to, you know, digitally remain in touch with Scott, you can follow the Innovation Leader on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram at uh, at you know Lead. Um, That's right. Uh, it seems like you have all of the social media platforms taken down. No Pinterest, notably, but. I don't know. I haven't been paying attention to Pinterest recently, but um, I think it's still out there. Yep. And thanks for having me. Of course. Pleasure. You've been listening to Radically Agile, powered by Catalan, the go-to podcast for interpreting the dramatic changes underway in the world of work. Please visit agileworkforce.com or email us at radical at gocatalan.com to join the conversation.